So we resume after four weeks break and yesterday I had taken out some of uh, mother's writings on Lord Ganesha because it's the start of Ganpati festival but I didn't know that he is at his mischief and in the morning I felt deeply inspired to read something on Shwarabindu as a teacher because yesterday we had teacher's day also. <laughs> so obviously though Ganesha is first among the gods but it's better that we read something on or rather reflect upon, meditate upon, think on something or someone who is greater than the gods or before the gods and that of course is Shwarabindu in his present incarnation. In a certain sense, um, there is a very superficial way of uh, remembering these days. Teacher's Day, we wish the teachers and we don't even know actually what teacher means. Anybody who comes and, you know, talks in the classroom is obviously not a teacher. Teacher must be open to light, if not actually embody it. That's the minimum. Teacher inspires, does not instruct. It's not like do's and don'ts. Uh, I was reading this interesting book by Sister Nivedita, The Master as I Saw Him. So, once she asked Swami Vivekananda, it's about the life of Swami Vivekananda seen at close quarters. So, she asked him, why don't you tell people what is to be done, what kind of meditation, what kind of pranayam? <laughs> you have reached such heights, why don't you instruct them? He said, that's not my work. My work is to inspire. And if people are inspired, the rest will follow. We see something very similar. How Shurabindu inspired, set the whole heart of a nation and the heart of the world at fire. The earliest teachers, at least we recollect, are the Vedic Rishis, the Rishis of the Vedas and the Upanishads. But there were seers before them. Nobody knows, they have not left any document. There is no documented history. All that the Vedic Rishis speak of is, are the forefathers from whom they have learned. They don't mention who are the forefathers. The mother also confirms this. She says, before the Vedic and the Chaldean tradition, there was a still more ancient tradition from which they were derived. No one knows about them. At least there is no documented evidence or history. And from there, this light spread down. What was their path? They came to teach the pathways of immortality. They had found it. So beautifully they, discover, they speak of their discoveries and he found it. Obviously the world was not ready and they gave their the truth that they found in double terms. One which was for the uninitiate and the other for the initiate. Over a period of time, this truth started to be lost. People caught the external aspect turned it into cults, religions, sects, whereas the real spirit of the Vedas was lost and therefore arose the great voice of the Upanishads bypassing the gods. In the Vedas we see the pathways through the gods, zigzag of the gods, one god like a relay race handing over to another and so on and so forth. But the rishis of the Upanishads declared very boldly that we don't have to do that. The supreme is within us. This is a great teaching and a great path. That's why it's called the end of knowledge, Vedanta. But again, mankind, we all being what we are, over a period of time, this too started to decline and there rose a still more wider path. This is the beauty of uh, the history of evolution, individual and collective. 
that every time there is a decline, the return is to a greater height. So there came Krishna, who not only embodied the essence of the Upanishads, but gave something new to earth, something which we had never tasted. The streams of bhakti, sweetness, a wide path of works, hinted in the Upanishads and the Vedas, which were trying to make a synthesis. But Sri Krishna presents it with a wideness and clarity as never before that. Things have a tendency to again degenerate into religion. Many sects came around Krishna. Many temples and mathas and mathadhis, all kinds of people gathered. And then we see Buddha, the voice of Buddha, who sought for permanence and stability and broke again all these external practices and ritualistic forms and discovered the permanent, the one abiding permanent, the silence, the peace of nirvana, beyond the hustle and bustle, the noise of life. His problem was suffering. Why there is suffering? There must be a way and he found a way. And then of course we know came Christ bringing with him, teaching with teaching to earth and men, compassion, brotherhood, another way towards freedom. And what has happened with it, we all know, because they were all partial glimpses of the one truth. They all saw the one truth. They saw an aspect or another. They were partial glimpses. So the big challenge was that because there were contrary truths which were not attended, which had not found voice and expression, there was a tendency for these things to, over a period of time, degenerate and turn into something else. Because man is a totality, is an integrality. And therefore we see Shurabindu comes, he brings not just permanence, not just immortality, but perfection. So perfection is a roundedness, it's a totality. The truth also that he brings and teaches is an all-embracing truth. Nothing is left out. He comes embodying in him the peace and silence of Buddha, the sweetness and love of Sri Krishna, the compassion of Christ and the fire of the Vedic Rishis and along with it something else and that something else which we know, which he establishes on earth in our midst is the power and puja of the Divine Mother. So, I thought this is wonderful to read something of Sri as a teacher. Of course, not as a teacher of yoga, though, because when it comes to yoga, we can't just say Sri is a teacher or a master. Mother has declared what he has brought is not just a teaching, not even a revelation, but it's a mighty action straight from the Supreme. So, we can't reduce it to a teaching. Teachers teach and let students walk their way. Of course, there is a joke about teachers which I think all teachers should remember. It is said and it's a very sad thing that those who can, they do. Those who can, they do. Those who cannot do, they teach. <laughs> and those who cannot teach, teach the teachers. Now this is of course a sad reflection. It should not be like that. So, Shobindo fortunately is not a teacher who teaches but doesn't walk the way. He has walked the path first and then he becomes a teacher. And when it comes to yoga, he is much more than a teacher, much more than an embodiment of light, truth, compassion. His compassion incarnate, his hope incarnate. 
so we'll read that part of shirbindo where he is a teacher a teacher in baroda and it's very inspiring particularly from this book one of my favorite i have read almost all lives of shirbindo i am sure all of us must have le- read, read them they are really a delight uh, most of them uh, but two of them are really exceptional one is shirbindo or the adventure of consciousness by satprem of course not minus those 15 odd pages that he has added after the mother's physical withdrawal otherwise it's delight it's directly inspired by shirbindo and the mother herself has testified that shirbindo came he wants you to write this book he wants you to manifest it and so often we see a mention in the agenda that it's shirbindo who is using satprem as a tool for this wonderful book adventure of consciousness after that we don't find the same inspiration none of the books carry that inspiration and the second one is rishab chand shirbindo his life unique this book has been inspired by the mother because she wanted him to write something about shirbindo's life before pondicherry and she made it explicit which she has made it at other places also that nobody can write about him once he came to pondicherry in fact she said if anybody tries to write he will create a mess because it's something which nobody can understand so this is primarily about his life before pondicherry though there is a chapter added on shirbindo in pondicherry and there is a very interesting aside to this book which shows how those days or people of that kind what what really sadhana is it's not about uh, just sitting in meditation or you know using a certain attire it's it's about a certain attitude now shubindo uh, the mother asked him to write it and he left everything did lot of research this well very well researched book at the same time very inspiring there are things in this book we don't find anywhere in any of the biographies i must say so he uh, did all this and handed over to the mother and the book was not published the mother pa- passed it on to the press but didn't pass an order print it so rishab chand ji never insisted that this book should be published simply because his nishkam karma he had done this as a offering he had completed his task it didn't matter when it will come out when it will see the light of the day what a wonderful spirit not to see his name in you know printed letters that i have written a book such a marvelous book but sure enough when it came out it's really marvelous book i don't know whether it it is uh, available i think it's available now but i am reading some glimpses of shirbindo's life as a teacher in baroda now here he writes rishab chand ji shirbindo was loved and highly revered by his students at baroda college we know that his baroda period is basically 1893 to 1907 roughly speaking and during this initially he was in the administrative services as the revenue officer to the maharaja baroda and there are very interesting stories about it and subsequently he also taught english and french as professor even associate professor and eventually as an vice principal and also for a while as acting principal so this was his uh, period as a teacher in baroda and he also eventually went to bengal where he was the principal in bengal national college so these were the period during which shirbindo was preparing himself or rather 
preparing india and through india the world for this yoga so he was loved and highly revered not only for his profound knowledge of english literature and his brilliant and often original interpretations of english poetry but for his saintly character and gentle and gracious manners he was we you know how mother has said he was a perfect gentleman even for even as a yog yogeshwar here in pondicherry if something had to be given to someone he would not say do it for me this was not in shubindas vein he would say something very impersonally i suppose this has to be done <laughs> leave it at that so gracious manners there was a magnetism in his personality and an impalpable aura of a lofty ideal and a mighty purpose about him which left a deep impression upon all who came in contact with him particularly upon young hearts and unsophisticated minds i found this very interesting that someone like rishabh chanji has used the word unsophisticated mind this cannot be used just casually that there there is a kind of mind which is not lost in the mazes of dialectics and you know intellectual discussions and debates not a grammarian's mind not a pedagogue's mind but a mind which is open to truth receptive to light so he had a great impression on them people want to know how was he how did he speak how did he walk how did he look calm and reserved benign and benevolent looks like we are reading a description of shiva or buddha benign and benevolent he easily became the center of respectful attention wherever he happened to be he was his benevolence 200 how should be the correct source actually some biographer wrote he used to earn rupees 300 as salary shobindo was so particular about details he said not 300 it was 200 per month somebody would say it doesn't matter but it's quite quite high salary at that point of time and at the end of the month there would be nothing left everything went off in giving here there or people were just picking up and when he was pointed out that don't leave money like this in the open he said see it is a proof that people are honest and divine provides me for what i need so there is a very touching story about his benevolence that his bengali teacher dinendra kumar roy he once needed some money and wanted to send it and he saw shobindo filling the money order <laughs> shobindo was going to send some money to his sister and his wife so he thought differently he thought this is a good opportunity for me to ask money because he was not sure whether he will be having or not so he realized he is sending money so surely he will be able to spare some money so he asked shobindo that um, i need to send some money so shobindo smiled and said oh sure he picked up the bag emptied it he said you take this now it was the whole lot of money which he was planning to send for money order and he left the money order halfway put it next to his mahabharata and ramayana uh, which were there on his desk that's how he describes then he said no 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 i don't need so much i just need a little bit you please i mean we can share something like that he said no no it's fine your need is greater than mine that was the end of the story 
this that kind of benevolence and this is not only towards one towards so many he would be generously he easily became the center of respectful attention to be close to him was to be quieted and quickened one did need anything to be near him and this is also an inner sign that we often say oh shurbindo i want to see shurbindo it's not about seeing shurbindo his presence is felt by a quietude and peace that descends upon our nature to be quieted and quickened not just like tamas quickened one felt alive in his presence to listen to him was to be fired and inspired indeed his presence radiated something which was at once enlivening and exalting his power sprang from his unshakable peace full of peace and within it tremendous power like the ocean again we see a description of shiva and the secret of his hold on men lay in his entire self effacement much later shubindu would write in the superman that an ideal ruler superman is he who rules to serve and serves to rule that's his way so how did he rule upon men he did not say you don't know who i am you must respect me i am the principal <laughs> i am so and so he was so self effacing that people were moved to respect him they couldn't do otherwise that was his way his nature which is we see again and again his greatness was like the gentle breath of spring invisible but irresistible it touched all that was bare and bleak around him to a splendor of renewed life and creative energy so this is he describes and then of course how did he live how was he staying 200 rupees a month must be staying in luxury probably having those days even a you know carriage with a driver he could easily afford dinendra kumar roy describes that when plague came shobindo and he shifted to a house and he said ah now i have an opportunity to shift to a good house so what was the good house it was a dilapidated building <laughs> tiles were leaking it was extremely hot during summer and extremely cold during winter full of flies and mosquitoes and he would say i would notice shorabinda is so busy and engrossed in reading so busy as if nothing would disturb him and he said i used to feel hot and i would feel cold and i would wonder why doesn't he do something about it but he was absolutely comfortable in all these states he describes it so he he was shorabinda was very simple in his mode of living life of a teacher he was not at all fastidious in his taste he did not care much for food or dress because he never attached any importance to them and this is a very interesting story about how he taught it was never in the conventional way never like a scholar x says so y says so reference this reference that we see the life divine such a treatise there are no references like that and yet it's such a lofty truth so shobindo himself says what kind of a teacher he was he says i was not so conscientious as a professor means it's not that he was preparing for long time making notes like a scholar making 10 references and then going and teaching 
I never used to look at the notes and sometimes my explanations did not agree with them at all. What was surprising to me was that the students used to take down everything verbatim and mug it up. So this is what he used to be surprised. He said, I am not wanting to teach another set of notes, but students would be taking down his notes very, uh, you know, very consentiously. And then she would be to recount this incident. Once I was giving a lecture on Saudi's life of Nelson. My lecture was not in agreement with the notes. So the students remarked that it was not at all like what was found in his notes. I replied, I have not read the notes. In any case, they are all <laughs> rubbish. <laughs> How? <laughs> in any case, they are all rubbish. I could never go to the minute details. I read and left my mind to do what it could. That is why I could never become a scholar. So this is his approach to the whole way of teaching, being inspired, inspiring others. Leave, you know, this filling up every dot is never good in life. You know, wherever, whether teachers or parents, sometimes we want to fill every small detail of a person's life. It's not done. It's the larger picture and leave the dots to be filled. Allow that freedom to each one. He used to be absorbed in reading to the extent that he was at times oblivious of the things around him. One evening the servant brought his meal and put the dishes on the table and informed him, Saab khana rakha hai. <laughs> Food is there. Master, the meal is served. He simply said, Alright, acha, without even moving his head. After half an hour, the servant returned to remove the dishes and found to his surprise the dishes untouched on the table. And this kind of approach where Shubindu was bound to nothing, this comes again and again. Imagine how he dropped his, what people were thinking was a habit of smoking. There was no habit. Just once mother says, you know, the boys don't understand you. <laughs> they don't understand the greatness and mightiness and you are like a vast ocean. Nothing can affect you. So, Shubhendu said, oh, that's the end of his. He got the hint and that's the end. Completely dropped. Not even once that, oh, they know, I must make them understand that don't take me to be an ordinary person. <laughs> I am someone different, someone special. He simply says, oh, like a very obedient little child of the mother. In the beginning, he used to give a series of introductory lectures in order to initiate the students into the subject matter of the text. After that, he used to read the text, stopping where necessary to explain the meaning of difficult words and sentences. He ended up by giving general lectures bearing on the various aspects of the subject matter of the text. So this was the way that he followed. Then there is another very touching about his you know, personal life during the same period. What kind of a teacher he was? Normally, you know, people would be uh, teachers think of salaries. Though I always feel Teachers and doctors should never think of uh, 
money because it totally corrupts. Of course, nobody should think of money in Nishkam Karma. But here is Sri writing to his wife, he says, Brilani Devi, For the moment I have to let you know only this, that I am no longer my own master. Where God leads me, I have to go. What he makes me do, I have to do, just like a puppet. It will be difficult for you to understand now what I mean. But it is necessary to inform you, otherwise my movements may give rise to grievances in you and make you suffer. Don't think that I am neglecting you in my preoccupation with my work. He touching. He says, you are in my heart. I do love you. I don't have to say this hundred times. I don't have to prove it by sending you money or showering my external affection. No, that's all he says. That don't think I am neglecting you. When you come here, you will be able to grasp the sense of what I say. And then he speaks about his path. I hope God will show you the light of his boundless grace even as he has shown it to me. But it all depends upon his will. If you wish as my wife to share with me a common spiritual life, try your utmost to exert your will so that he may reveal to you also the path of grace. I found this again very interesting. People say Shubindo's path. Shubindo, even in another letter, asserts that Nirvana came to me not by my own efforts, but by the grace of the Guru. And then he says, or you may say, by the grace of Krishna and Kali, or the grace of the divine, depending on how you look at it. He says, it walked into my life by the grace. It's not about effort. So he mentions that. Shirobindo never cared for money. When I was at Baroda, he was getting a pretty fat salary. He was alone. He knew no luxury, nor the least extravagance. While talking, Shirobindo used to laugh heartily. He was not in the habit of prinking himself up. I never saw him change his ordinary clothes even while going to the king's court. Expensive shoes, Shirts, ties, collars, flannel, nilen, different types of coats, hats and caps. He had none of these. I never saw him use a hat. In fact, that was his first shock when he came to meet Shirobindo. Oh, he must be an arrogant fellow from Cambridge, all in suit, boot and he was a bit nervous, Dinant Kumar Roy. But when he sees him, that he is wearing a dhoti and you know, just a little chadar, that to a coarse dhoti, sleeping on a choir mattress with that grass mat on it, he asked him, what is it? Is this how you are living? He said, of course, I am a brahmachari. That's how I live. I am supposed to live. Jokingly, he passed it off. And then, you know, we all want to know how did Shurbindo speak? What was his voice like? And there are descriptions some people have given here and there. Uh, for instance, Amaldar speaks about hearing Shurbindo's voice once, straining his ears when Shurbindo was dictating Savitri to Niruddha. Of course, Niruddha was so fortunate to hear his voice and that to Savitri. Uh, here is another description of his voice. It's a rare privilege. His laughter was simple as a child's and as liquid and soft. 
Though an inflexible will showed at the corners of his lips, there was not the slightest trace in his heart of any worldly ambition or the common human selfishness. There was only the longing, rare even among the gods, of sacrificing himself for the relief of human suffering. No trace of ambition, no trace of vanity, etc. We see in Shurabindo. Then another place, Bal Gangadhar Tilak. We know that they were together in the common cause. Tilak is well known, admired, revered. In fact, Ganpati festivals partly owes itself to him. Of course, it was started earlier. It was started by Shivaji Maharaj to knit the Marathas together into one common uh, uh, you know, unity. And then, of course, um, it was continued after being discontinued for a while. Then Tilak turned it into a national festival because he saw it's a wonderful opportunity to bring the country together. You know, people had to be united. It was a British Raj. So he found a very novel way because they can't say no. So through this Ganpati festival, all the people were brought together. So even now if you see the origin of Ganesh Chaturthi, you will not find it really in mythological stories. It is a festival started by Shivaji. And subsequently, it is Tilak who really used it to its utmost by making it a national festival. And Shurabindu also confirms this. So what does Tilak has to say? Bal Gangadhar Tilak, who knew Shurabindu intimately and enjoyed his friendship and respectful confidence, wrote about him in some of his editorial comments in the Kesari. Here is an English rendering. None is equal to Aravinda in self-sacrifice. This was hallmark of his character. Knowledge and sincerity. None is equal to Aravinda in self-sacrifice, knowledge and sincerity. If one sees him, one won't think it was Aravinda. So weak of body and so simple in dress and bearing, it is a dispensation of benign providence that persons like Aravinda have been drawn to the national work. His erudition, sattvic temperament, religious mind and self-sacrifice, he writes from divine inspiration, sattvic intelligence and unshakable determination. So this is how he saw and described him. Then these are of course great men and some people of his time. There were some yogis also who, who met and had the greater privilege of seeing Shurabindu. Aspirant yogis, swamis, what did they see in him? So we have description of his close associates, we have description of his teacher, Dinendra Kumar Roy, we have description of his students, we have description of a mind as great as Tilaks and now we have descriptions of two persons who were in their own right yogis. So one of them had his own ashram, Keshavanandji, a hut yogi. And he mentions, it was always his way to inspire everybody who came into active contact with him on the line of his heart and aptitude. This is what frees a spiritual teaching from a religious one. A religious teaching becomes a dogma. So people read a set of rules, do's and don'ts and everybody is told along the same lines. 
do this don't do this subscribe to this don't subscribe to that where is a spiritual teaching see how the great rishis shubindo speaks in you know when he speaks of essays on the gita he says the gita was given to a practical dynamic man like arjuna if yudhishthir asked the same question to sri krishna the answer would have been very different because yudhishthir had a satvik temperament if he asked maybe sri krishna would have told him yes yudhishthir yes it's a good thought that you must climb beyond this search for a kingdom go into deep contemplation and meditation and discover the truth of your being but yudhishthir didn't ask him because yudhishthir was so assured of his self righteousness like any satvik person that he felt there is no need i am fighting a righteous war where is the question whereas arjuna was a dynamic practical man when he asked sri krishna he gave him the answer the answer which would apply to most because most people live on are of that kind but if there was another person the answer would be very different so what shurbindo did was he guided people along their own heart and temperament and not interfere with his individual evolution by imposing his thoughts and ideas upon him that is why it's so difficult to understand sometimes even the mother's ways she would say one thing and when some people said some other thing then she would change it also she saw that well this person wants to do it this way fine and it was only when someone said that no i want only you to tell me and i'll follow only that then she would say you see how beautifully shri krishna in the gita this something very remarkable which goes unnoticed after 18 chapters of such marvelous deep profound truth at the end what does shri krishna says he says arjuna i have told you what i had to say now you are free to follow what you wish to follow shri krishna doesn't say you better now lift up the dhanush and listen to me i have wasted so much time and the armies are waiting he says i have told you now you are free if you still want to choose vairagya or sanyasa you may do so so this is the quality of the great ones the greatness of the great he left everybody free to follow the self law of his being and develop according to it so there were people who when the playground started then people started going to playground so soon it became a dogma that if you are not going to playground you are not doing sadhana because super mind is going to descend there and those who are not going there will be deprived of it so people wrote to shurbindo that i believe the super mind is descending in the playground <laughs> or going to descend so what about us because we have our duties here with you and with <laughs> so we won't receive it shubindo says no 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 in that case i will be the first one not to receive it because i don't go to playground then dilip kumar roy and others asked him we don't go to playground so he said who told you that mother wants everybody to go to the playground and become sportsman he said who is giving you all these ideas to one person he would write a letter which is often shown that i am i am not in favor of propaganda except for books and as for propaganda i am not in favor of it except for politics and patent medicine so this letter is often quoted you know that shurbindo says i am against propaganda against propaganda there is another letter where shurbindo says that kind of work in brackets propaganda can also be part of mother's work is done in the right attitude he was not fixed or rigid about anything it was the attitude which he saw 
See, if we did propaganda with the idea of propaganda, conversion, evangelism, personal greatness, then don't do it. It's a poison. If somebody didn't know, wanted to serve mother, and the only thing he could do was probably to just say that, you know, I just know mother and she is so wonderful. Fair enough. That's also part of it. So, there are so many letters of Sri where if we don't read the totality, we will get a one-sided picture. Even there are compilations where there is a one-sided slant given to Sri Aurobindo because it's so easy to do that. So here is someone revealing to us a Hat Yogi. He left everybody free to follow the self-law of his being and develop according to it. And same person also at different points of time. That's why it's so difficult to quote Sri Aurobindo. This was the chief characteristic of his leadership and understandably enough, a constant source of bewilderment to his associates and followers. Because they couldn't understand what really is Shurabindu implying. Is he saying this or is he saying that? For his serene yogic detachment, his perfect unconcern in the midst of various action and his different ways of dealing with and leading different natures baffled them. Try as they would, they fail to take his measure with their mental yardsticks. Prophet souls are eternal enigmas and paradoxes of history. They couldn't understand that he is saying one thing to one person, very different to another. And we see this right throughout, toward the end. And uh, to somebody, uh, Mother Woods, there were people to whom Shobindu said, don't go away, never go away, just stay here. To others, Shobindu encouraged to join the military during the Second World War. How are we going to account for this? So this was his way, very different with different people depending on their temperament and nature. Then there is another, which is of another Swamiji and with that we will stop. And this is from Swami Pratyagatmananda. So, what did he see in Sharbindo? He used to come to his meeting. There were many uh, yogis of that time who were inspired about nationalism. Vivekananda ji we know. Another was Vasishth Ganpati Muni. A great yogi. So great that mother said as soon as he entered into my, uh, as soon as he sat for meditation, he immediately entered into my spiritual consciousness and followed me right up to the end. Rare yogi of rare achievement, somebody who recognized Raman Maharshi and gave him the name Ramana and became his disciple. And that yogi, he said, I want to, I cannot rest or go further till the country is liberated. He had put all his powers behind India's freedom and I mean, he was a great yogi in his own right. So here is another yogi and he says, In the beginning, I sought to recognize in Shurbindo the Vedic Agni in its dual aspect. The blazing force of Rudra and the serene force of the Brahmic consciousness, radiant with supernal knowledge. When he started his work in the heaving politics of Bengal, it was the blazing, fiery aspect of Rudra. But those who associated with him in the National College saw his serene figure glowing with a mellow luster. These two aspects were fused into one in Shurbindo as in the third eye of Shiva. 
So this is how a yogi sees him. And when I read all this, I am reminded of the famous Ramayana episode when Lord Rama walks into the uh, assembly of Janak to marry Sita. Each sees him according to his own perception. From among the days when I came into close contact with Sri Aurobindo, I can single out two in my memory. One day there was a meeting of the teachers of the National College. Shubindu was in the chair, his body framed in august silence. What a language this is. We always knew him to be reticent and reserved in speech. The subject discussed in the meeting was which should be the days of national festival. Somebody proposed that Bunkim Day should be one of them, and all of us gave it an enthusiastic support. But the support which came from Shirobindo had the benign, vibrant blare of the trumpet of Shiva. At the end of all this, Shirobindo must have said, yes, of course, or something of that nature. Another day, it was the Saraswati Puja. We were all squatting in the courtyard. Shirobindo sat next to me, his heavenly body almost touching mine. Those days, before he has come to Pondicherry, he is feeling that heavenly. Before even he has gone to the Alipur jail and had the experience of Vasudevam Sarvamiti, to put it in context of time. This is somewhere August 2007. The Vaishnava music of Kirtan was playing. It moved me so profoundly that I could not contain my tears. They flowed in an incessant stream of ecstasy. But Shurbindo sat silent and immobile like Shiva in trance. Even now when I shut my eyes, his gracious, tranquil, luminous face swims up into my vision. I had known him as a Jnana Yogi and a Karma Yogi. But on that day, as if in a flash of intuition, I beheld him as a Purna Yogi lapped in the yogic sleep of deep meditation and all of a sudden an appeal of vibrant poignancy swept out of the deepest chord of my soul. Tell me, whom wilt thou reveal thyself as the living, transcendent embodiment of the Poon Yoga and the integral liberation? He prays, whom are you going to reveal this aspect of yours? Of course, the revelation came to mother, who else? Come, manifest thyself. India, bent and humbled, calls for thy advent. To the image of that resplendent divinity, my heart chanted forth a hymn. I bow to thee, Shurabindo, I salute thee. So this is the time when we see Shurabindo's picture with all those garlands. This is when he was part of the National College and because of his writings, he was involved in a sedition case. So, because he felt it will embarrass the college, look at the greatness. He didn't want that because he's involved in a court case, now the, you know, after all the institution will be embarrassed. So, he resigned from it, which means no salary, nothing. Just to save the institution, he said, I am going to resign. And when he resigned to move away from the college and completely plunge into that time politics and the case was going on, the students requested to give him a farewell 
the students and the teachers and they called him to Bengal National College. So on 23rd August, Shobindo gave a wonderful address, which is which was printed in September next month, 1907, in the dawn. Now the dawn is in Pakistan with <laughs> some other newspaper, <laughs> but the dawn. And that address is a momentous address where he gives only one advice to people. And, and that day he was, you know, they wanted a group photograph and a single photograph. So they had put all the garlands and Shubhindu is touched. And then he says, I am nothing. And it will not uh, make me happy if you just, uh, uh, you know, have sympathy with me. I'll be happy if you have sympathy with my cause, with the idea for which I stand. And then he says, I am very proud today. Why? Not because they are respecting him. He says, this respect is only to the mother. But I am proud because I know that even if I were to pass away, there are many who will carry my work forward and lead it to its completion. What humility. Such a self-effacing, self-sacrificing yogi of yogis, master of masters, the divine himself, Ishwar Bindo, that line from God, which I am, comes to my mind again and again, particularly today when God's so-called gods sit on huge gaddis, giving lectures, asking for money, enrolling disciples. Here is a self-effacing God who, who writes later on, who is God? He says, O thou who wouldst disdainest not the worm to be, nor even the clod, therefore we know by that humility that thou art God. The sign of God, one more line with which we will close, when he started to speak to the National College students who adored him. Can we imagine that, you know, they are giving him a farewell, what it must be? And Shubhindu says, I have been told that you wish me to speak a few words of advice to you. Look how he starts. But in these days I feel that young men can very often give better advice than we older people can give. I think if we just meditate on this line, our lives would change. And what is our refrain? Oh, these youngsters, all spoilt. We are the only ones. Here is your window saying, they can give better advice. Nor must you ask me to express the feelings which your actions, the, in, the way in which you have shown your affection towards me, have given rise to in my breast. It is impossible to express them. I see that you have expressed sympathy with me in what you call my present troubles because there was a sedition case in which he could be hanged or sent to Andamans. I don't know whether I should call them troubles at all. For the experience that I am going to undergo was long foreseen as inevitable in the discharge of the mission that I have taken up from my childhood. One of the places where Shobindo brings out clearly that he was conscious of it since his childhood. And it's a reminder to all of us that when we take up a work or take up yoga, is a big word, but life of walking the path of yoga, many difficulties and dangers will come. So we should be like Shurvindo, firm and determined. This is foreseen. Shurvindo doesn't even call them trouble. He says, you are calling it trouble. <laughs> and he uses the word slight troubles which may appear to you. But this is something foreseen. I have chosen for it. It is not something which I should seek sympathy for. 
This is the path that he has shown for us. We will stop here, continue next week.